Good morning, America, and welcome to this morning's huddle, brought to you by Going On Offense. My name is Daryl Moon, and I'll be your host today. Thank you for being with us, and we hope you will enjoy the conversation today about reinventing work to respond to the new world. We're holding these huddles every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in an effort to both be a support to those who are struggling, but also to brainstorm and work together to share and create strategies to inject hope and optimism where there may be doubt and despair. We want to give a shout out to all those who are risking their lives on the front lines of this battle and caring for those who have the virus or serving the needs of the public. There are four primary purposes for these huddles, to support those struggling, to brainstorm strategies to help, to promote resources, and to engage collaboration. Now to introduce today's guest. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Mark Cook. Mark is a good friend and the principal of Windfall Partners and has coached 4,000 individuals and leaders at top brands to innovate and strategize exceptional results. Mark's new Windfall series includes three proven ways to improve any result. Mark is both a New York Times and Amazon best-selling author and has led nine international studies on exceptional innovations, leader strategies, and revenue growth. Mark's coaching, speaking, and workshopping passion has gained, was gained early in his career with mentor Stephen Covey. Mark is the father of five boys with his wife, Anika. If you would like to learn more about Mark, you can go to markspencercook.com. As mentioned before, today's conversation is about reinventing work to find exceptional results in this new world that we live in. Mark is going to share some strategies that he's researched and found to be very successful, but we would love to hear your ideas and suggestions as well. I'm going to launch a poll to learn about your interest in participating today, uh, let us know if you're looking to reinvent yourself to find work, reinvent yourself to better perform at your job, reinventing what your company does to respond to this new world we live in, or you're, you're wanting to learn how to help someone else or other. So, Mark, while the people are submitting their answers, take a few minutes to introduce yourself and today's topic of the huddle. Hi, everyone. How are you? Uh, I, I promise that I sent Daryl two sentences about my introduction. <laughs> <laughs> the rest was for writing. Anyway, I'm so glad to be with you today. Um, I've, I've had uh, a varied career, and I'm excited to be talking with you. My I've focused in different ways on exceptional results uh, through leadership and strategy and sales. And it's always been about researching, writing books, and creating workshops and, and coaching to get people to the place that they want to go. So I'm excited to be with you. Uh, let's ask that question now. Is, are they answering that right now, Dale? They are, and it looks like people are pretty well done. So I'm going to close it and share it. And it looks like 40% said reinventing themselves to better perform at their job. 40% said other. And 20% said reinventing what their company does. So it looks like performing better at their job is number one. Other is number two. And then reinventing what their company does is number three. 
So maybe well, we that's could... great. I think I think that that is an appropriate topic for for me, obviously, um, with my background, but also maybe I'll share just personally with everyone that I'm going through this because I've been a speaker and a workshopper, and it's always live. I sell. I I, I depend on people getting people together. And instead of getting together, we're all huddled in our own home offices doing our own thing. And so uh, I'm having to pivot. And um, I have done, luckily, enough significant individual coaching, which has been a sideline for me, that uh, it's something that I actually enjoy the most. But obviously, um, it, it's, a, it's a tiny bit more lucrative to go speak to 600 people than it is to one. And so I just haven't ever got to do it as much. And I am loving this opportunity to get better at that and to do it and um, use the frameworks that I have researched and proven with individuals and groups on someone's individual career. I mean, it's just such a fulfilling thing. So it's a great topic. Those of you that answered that you're trying to get better at your job, um, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not the person you want to hire as your manager for the next two years. It's just not my strength. But if you want to get better at your job, I am someone you should talk to. So I'm, I'm thrilled to try to deliver on that. If it's something that you want to you transition your company to do, uh, I've been an entrepreneur. I'm one of the founders of C7. That's a, a hosting company that's still alive today in its new iteration. Um, and we had to transform it three completely different times, three completely different technology businesses, because that's what the market required us to do. And so here I am in my home office, and I'm pivoting again with those 40%-ish that wanted to figure out what they're going to do with the company and the new path you're going to take. Um, Mark, I'm going to interrupt you just real quickly. Yeah. As you begin to kind of share what those basic strategies are, I'd like to enter or invite um, our attendees today. I was going to do this before, and I forgot, but we would love for you to join the conversation. This is not about just Mark and I talking together. We'd love to have you join the conversation. And I know we've got some people here that I know well. Would, it, would please uh, invite them to raise their hand on their uh, control panel. And as you do, I will turn your microphone on so you can join the conversation as well. So please raise your hand and let's include you in the conversation. So, Mark, maybe you, they're that. lucky that. Go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say, I'll tell you, they're lucky that you didn't make me an organizer as well as a panelist, because if I saw their names, I'd just call on them. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, please in, in, involve yourselves. And Daryl and I have been talking a little bit about um, what questions to ask and such. And so um, I, I think the place to start is where we started. Um, I'm going to shift these things up a little bit and and just talk a little bit about where to start. Um, one of the things that I didn't give Daryl to post or, or to do a poll on is where people's mindsets are. You know, it's interesting. I've been, through, I've been in front of thousands of people, and I always ask one question, even if it's a different topic. I have three different topics that I specialize in, and it, whatever the topic is, I almost always ask them, you know, who considers themselves an idea person? Um, if it's an innovation workshop, I'll say who considers themselves an innovator. But it's roughly the same question. Who's an idea person? And it's really shocking to see how few people think they're an idea person. 
and half of innovation is the, the idea, and then the other half, obviously, is the execution. The amount of work, obviously, is heavily weighted on the execution, but if you don't figure out a way to have the idea that a market will respond to, you're really in trouble. And so the, the process, the, the three findings that help us generate a clear target and then develop ideas are probably a very useful place to talk about in the beginning. Um, I will tell you that you, you can be an idea person. It's not a matter of neurons. It's not, it's not a matter of IQ. Uh, an idea person is someone who just knows how to come up with ideas. And those people that you sit around with in conference rooms and all of a sudden they raise their hand 10 times and you haven't had one of the great ideas that everyone loves, they don't have something in their biology that's different than you. What they have is they have habitually or inadvertently even done these few things that help them generate ideas. There's really only a few ways or at least sources, many ways, but only a few sources to get ideas for this turnaround in your job or in your turnaround in your career. Um, you know, you can think them. They can come out of your own experience and your own mind and intellect and even, even come from where you were, came to this earth from. But you can also get them from going to other people and you can get them from going to other places. Really, if you think about it, at the highest level, there is no other really place to go. Even if you're spiritual, that's another person. So you, you really only have those three opportunities to get new ideas. And so the question becomes, how do you do that? And the best place to start is in your own mind. You know, asking, your question, asking yourself questions about what you perceive the people that you're serving. Now, when I talk about customers, honestly, the majority of the time and people that I've worked with don't have external customers except for ultimately down the line. What they have is people that they give their work to that's in the next cube, in the next office, down in the next conference room. So that's what we'll be talking about is how to ideate and, and get better ideas that really connect to those people. And I, I, won't, I won't present. We're not presenting today. We're discussing. But maybe, Daryl, we can ask one of the other questions, or if you'd like me to ask a question. Yeah, let me, maybe we can launch the next poll, which is approximately how many things on your plate with work right now in the middle of this COVID. So I'm going to launch that. <laughs> Give us yeah, an idea I'm of how many things are on your this, plate. Uh, so that's, that's out there for people to start answering to right now. Yeah, let's let's see. You know, typically, uh, I'll tell you what the ordinary answer is, quote unquote. The ordinary answer is somewhere around seven. You know, some some people, it feels almost like social pressure in a room that I'm in. They may answer 25, but a lot of people answer seven to 10. Very few people answer one. Very few people say 50. It's about people, whatever they define that as a project, an emphasis, an area of their occupation, the tasks they have to do a week, whatever it is, however they define how many things, it's usually about seven to ten-ish that people Well, you're, you're a pretty good guesser because right now it looks like most people have finished um, the response. I'm going to go ahead and close it and launch it or share it so people can see it. Basically, 17% said 0 to 6, 
the vast majority, 50% of people said 7 to 13. We had 17% say 14 to 20, and 17% said 21 to 27. Yeah. So it looks, it's good news. Those that we have on are not sitting at home un, unemployed and unengaged in what they've been asked to do or what they've decided to do on their own as a business. Let me ask a related question. It, it will be more of an organic. I'd love to see if someone can tune in and say something and or text us or message us, I mean. Um, so how many things at one time can you do in exceptional fashion, whatever you define a thing is? Well, and just so people know, uh, we would welcome their their answer just by putting in a question. And by the way, we had one participant uh, mention, as we asked, we launched that last poll, hard to determine if this crisis, COVID-19, has added more or less to my plight. <laughs> You're blessed. You're blessed. <laughs> During this time. So um, we have one, one participant. people are and half of people aren't. You know, it feels, I don't know what the percentage is, but there doesn't seem to be many in between. People are swamped because they help with what the situation prescribes or they, they have to work on their own to figure something else out. Okay. We do have one participant who's been, who's agreed to participate with this. Uh, that's Jody. Jody just raised her hand. So I just turned her mic on and she's the one who said that it really is just one. I'm going to go ahead and um, let her turn off her. She's self muted, but Jody, do you, do you want to share your thoughts when you say there's one thing that you can do exceptionally? And then another person said, focus has shifted from full-time work to homeschooling. So certainly there's been a shift with this. Jody, can you hear us? Oh, yes. Yes. Sorry. I was uh, struggling. I'm on a different device. So, so yeah, there's only one thing you can do well at a time. So, okay. So can you hear me okay? We can. We can hear you, Jody. Okay, so, yeah. Mark, Jody's response is there's one thing you can focus on to do exceptional at one time. What's your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, uh, we have all learned since we were three years old, if anything's worth doing, it's worth doing. Answer that yourself. You don't have to say it out loud. But we know that our mom said, well. So, so that implies that everything we do has to be amazing. Well, really, that's, that's not what she meant. Uh, when she said, if something's worth doing well, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing well, it means that it has to be to standard. And the world and the economy are actually built upon the standard of us delivering what's expected. We need it. You know, if the government comes and needs something done by us and gives us specifications that are microscopic, it's not an innovator's job to say, you know, those specifications that you sent us were great, but we decided to do something completely different. It's just not what they're wanting from us. The economy runs on solid expectations, but it only improves with exceptional work and results. And so the question is, is kind of a loaded question because you can only really do one thing truly exceptionally at a time. A lot of people can do two things in great fashion and then Three is really starting to stretch. This has been researched by three different groups, including me. And when you get to that fourth one, it is like a cliff. If you are trying to do four things at one time on your plate in truly exceptional, as in an outlier fashion, you're going to have all of them 
crash into the cliff or fall off the results cliff. And so, so really, so, so Mark, focus on one to three things to be amazing. So on that point, maybe address from your research, is it recommended that people do just focus on one thing that they're trying to be exceptional at? Is yeah, it best to just point. focus on one thing? That's my point is, is you can focus on three if you're brave. You can focus on two if you're really great. Uh, even if you're a leader with teams that can help you, uh, if you want to really get somewhere, you focus on one. Think about all the presidential elections. There's, there's numerous stories of focusing on one thing and, and business focus on one thing. And so focus is a powerful thing, and uh, a diverted attention is a dangerous thing. Now, you have to do those other 13. If you, said, if you said 13 things, you have to do the other 12 solid. Not saying that. But, if, but let's say you're sitting at home and uh, a vacuum salesperson comes to the door. Certainly, it's our duty to be polite. If we don't need a vacuum, it's not our duty to be the amazing customer <laughs> that they are hoping for. It's really our duty to be polite. Uh, there are just some things, obviously, even at work. If an IBM salesperson calls me and I don't need anything that IBM provides at that moment, it's not my job to call back in truly exceptional speed with exceptional insight. It's, it's just not realistic. We have many administrative tasks, tasks in life. We have many things that are, people are depending on that need to be to specification. And so those other 12 things need to be to specification. But the goal here with this discussion today is to really figure out for yourself by looking at your, the people that you serve, whether it's an internal or external customer, what their needs are. Look at how that contributes to the dollar that flows through your organization, even if it's your own business. And, and using those two, the mind behind the metrics and the metrics themselves, figure out what is my priority that I really should be focused on and hit out of the park. And so Mark, if we get to yeah. With that point, you mentioned you made a very important comment, I think, when you said, find out what your customer's needs are. And maybe we could springboard just a little bit about if, you know, if you're not talking about a customer that's going to pay you business, but like you said, it's literally the people you work with, what are some of the best ways, if we want to be exceptional, what are some of the best ways to ask, to retrieve, and to gather that information? And I'd love to, sh I'd love to open this up to everyone to share thoughts about how you gather information about what your customer needs. So either send that information in through a question, or please raise your hand, and I'd love to have you join us. Maybe, Jody, we could start with you. What are some ways that come to mind for you as to how you find out what your customer wants and needs? Okay, I'm now unmuted. Um, You're unmuted. So we can hear you. Great. So that's a great question. Um, so I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one work. And so for me, <clears throat> um, I, it, one, it's a health questionnaire, right? Finding out what their concerns are, their health concerns. Uh, secondly, um, it's then listening beyond the questionnaire and observing their behavior patterns. And it's not a one-time conversation, rather a series of conversations, because people typically don't really know what they need. They evolve and figure it out 
as they're actually talking typically. So that's what I do. I try to listen to what is being said and then also read between the lines. No, I think that's a very good point. Not just not just reading an assessment or questionnaire, but listening. Mark, what have you found works? Yeah, you know, she just she just stole all my lines. Actually, no, it's perfect. Oh no! Oh no! no. no, no, no. I'm just kidding. (laughs) So that is a perfect answer. Um, Just to springboard off it, the the customer, whether they're internal or external, doesn't really know. There's a reason for this because we have things that are tangible in front of us. You know, I have to get the report to you because you have to present it, or I have to get you this code so you can put it into the software release, or whatever it is. There, there's things that we see. We see them on the screen. We see them on our desk. We walk around and see them. And and the visible uh, is not always the most important thing. It's it's been said by many people that the only the only the invisible things in life are the most important. And that is true for this topic that we're on right now, too. So you can ask a customer. You can do a survey, and we all do, and they should be. It's a prerequisite. It's a checkmark that we all should get. We should go survey customers or talk to them and have verbal conversations that are once. But as Jody is discovering with multiple conversations, you know, humans, hum, humans uh, think by talking a lot of the time. And so as you allow a customer to talk more and more and more, they discover their own reasons for wanting to even interact with you. And so one of the things, the first way that, that you identify this opportunity in your job or to pivot in your company is not by just asking. That's the check mark, that's the prerequisite, but then you have to go through the deeper, well-known human needs. And I have uh, done a lot of research around this as, as others have. And there are really 12 all-stars of human needs. And they're not unexpected. I'll just give you a little bit of cheat on this. Uh, if, you, if you think back to Maslow, he had five originally, and they're quoted all over the Internet, and everyone talks about Maslow's five hierarchy of five needs. Well, at the end of his career, no one talks about that he had eight. I have no idea why. But he, had, he actually studied empirically and came up, came up with eight needs. And then since then, there's been a lot of bright people focused on this because it's a very important topic. And they've come up with, well, you know, there's 12 that, and I, in my own study, looked at, um, did a meta study on other people's work. And whatever you call them, these 12 things show up, whether, the, whether you call them positive emotions, whether you call them needs, whether you call them desires, whatever you call them, there's about 12 things. And they're, they're not unpredictable. They're wellness, et cetera, et cetera. So if, if, you, if you think that you're just delivering a report to Jenny, and that's what you do, and that's what she needs is that report on time and for it to be beautiful, you miss the opportunity to be exceptional. Because if you actually consider Jenny and her whole experience at work, not just that report, and you look at the underlying needs of a human being, and you say, what is Jenny really getting out of this? Well, she's not presenting the report. Her boss is. She's trying to get ahead in her work to make more income for her family. She's feeling a little self-conscious around the cubes in her area, et cetera, et cetera. Jenny has completely different needs than actually presenting that report. And so if you just send an email, you have literally missed 99% of what her needs are. And yet if you consider Jenny and you go over to Jenny and you have a thorough discussion, as we've just heard, beautiful answer, uh, enough discussion, enough listening, we'll let Jenny think out loud and she'll finally reveal, you know, I just, I just need a promotion. I've been here 10 years and I haven't got yeah. a promotion. 
Thanks. So, so Mark, I'm going to interrupt you again. We have another attendee who's willing to jump on and share some thoughts. Um, Calvin, I've got your mic turned on. What are your thoughts about this? Well, can you guys hear me? Uh-huh, we can. Um, I, I work at a pharmaceutical research company. So I, I, um, I work at a place that's kind of like the middleman in, in the pharmaceutical world. So we have two types of customers. Our first customers are the investigators who are paying us to test the drug out. And then we have um, subjects who are being paid by us to come and test the drug out. So in, in my perspective, we have two types of customers, the subjects who we need to keep happy to keep coming back um, so we can test the drug, but also the investigators who are uh, paying us to have the drug tested. So I'm sure there's other uh, fields that also have two different types of customers, and I'm wondering how we can, like, mediate to to uh, to make sure that we are pleasing both both types of customers. Great question. Great question. You know, um, work is called work for a reason. It's work. And doing exceptional work is actually hard work. Uh, I'd love to say it's fun and it's cre just creative and all that. It's not. Creativity is a lot of work. It's enjoyable, fulfilling, passionate work to ideate and innovate and even execute down to the finish line. But one of the, one of the stops along the way is, is at the beginning where Calvin's talking about, you have one person, Jenny, that you're giving the report to. But she's not your only customer. Her boss giving the report to the board is also your customer. There's, there's a value chain that, that both extends past that initial person that, create, that gets value from you and ripples outside of the person getting value from you, whatever it is, whether it's external or internal. And all, very few, a tiny percent of workers consider on that internal customer the ripples and the quantities of people that are being served by what they deliver, the value that they deliver. And so the answer to Calvin's question is, the, is, well, if you could say it's unfortunate, but it's not really unfortunate. There is more work than considering one person. You have to actually think about all of the different people that are touched at least immediately by the value deliver, and you have to think through and discern in this first step that we'll talk about. There's other ways we can come up with ideas, but discern what they need, both at a tangible, visible level, the practical stuff, and then also those underlying needs, and also the organization's underlying financials that, that we don't have time to go into today. But all three levels, um, really for all of them and for each of them. I'd love to hear what Calvin has to say um, about that. What are his thoughts about those two different customers and how you find out what, uh, what their needs are? Well, the subjects needs, the, the ones that uh, are coming in to get the drug tested, those ones are kind of easier because they, I mean, we treat them like a patient in the healthcare fields where, um, where we just are able to ask them what their needs are and um, take care of them in that way. The investigators' needs are a lot harder. That's why I was asking the question because they're not in the clinic. We don't, we don't get to see them. The only way that we know what their needs are is by their uh, their protocol that they send us, and 
and tell us specifically what we need to do. Um, but obviously sometimes the subject's uh, wants and needs are different from the investigator's wants and needs, and sometimes they are uh, in conflict, and so we have to choose, you know, which, which one we, uh, we fulfill, and it usually comes down to the investigator because they're the ones paying us, you know, the, the money, and they're, and they're uh, the priority there. So sometimes you obviously need to pick the, the customer that is uh, of higher importance, which sounds bad, but it's kind of, you know, the truth there. Well, I think another answer is that there's just work to be done. You know, the employ your employer um, and supervisors uh, may or may not welcome an improvement project, so to speak. We saw we saw that 40% of the people online were dealing with their current job, not their own company, and they're trying to improve things. And improvements take a lot of shapes. And one of them is, um, hello, Mr. And Mrs. Employer or boss. We have, a, we have a slight uh, conflict, uh, not legally a conflict of interest, but emotionally a conflict of interest, and we need to reconcile that. We need to, we need to think outside the box. We need to do some serious work on this. And there isn't a simple answer to reconcile two parties that sometimes slightly disagree or have different interests. It takes work to reconcile. It takes work to mediate, and it, and it is a project in and of itself. And if that's a if that's an area of importance to either you know significance to those to those patients and or significant to your company or significant to the other company, uh, if any party um, if there's opportunity and if there's significance for them, then it's worthy of an improvement project. Uh, if if not, then it's one of the twelve things we talked about in the first of the call that you need to manage and navigate and, and deliver to an exceptional level. But you could, you can just hear, you could turn that into a big project and investigation. And the question is, is that the priority that you should be focused on? Right. So if there's better priorities, then, then don't focus on that. If that is the biggest priority that you see anywhere in your work life, then attack it like a crazy person, really, you know, with the processes that we're going to talk about in a second. Nice. So, Mark, there's a comment that came in. I think it's a good comment. Um, so, <clears throat> in finding out, like, from your customer, one suggestion is ask questions during social distancing. The very best way we can determine what your our customer needs is, is to open up communication lines like emails, text, Marco Polo, Zoom meetings. So, kind of specific to our current situation, those are some ideas and suggestions on how you can gather customers' input where you can't go visit with them. But you can still call them. You can still have a Zoom meeting with them. And, and I would ask Calvin, with your investigators, you know, you, you mentioned that the only way you can find out what their needs are is through their specs. Is there any way to get them on the phone, have a conversation, or is it kind of just cut off at, that, at the specs? For me, it's kind of cut off. Uh, for like, for people um, higher up on the totem pole, I'm sure they have a, a better communication with the investigators. So it's kind of hard for me personally to like get into contact with them. Uh, let, let me answer that quickly because it goes right to one of my main principles. Um, 
we're going to skip the first one that's a, a, a more thorough way to understand needs and get ideas uh, just for a second. We'll go to, to number three, um, which is I call a smarter crowdsourcer. It's my crowdsourcing. I, my, my model for rapid innovation for individuals and for companies is, call, is the, the engine of it, not the product, but the engine of it I call the five jobs of an innovator because of all the research and practices that, that I've been involved with and led. There, there are many, there are a dozen things that I know could affect results, but the 12 top impact things, there are five. And so they, they start to, if you look at them, there are many different types of occupation that innovate using these same five types of activities. But normal cubes and offices don't use them at all, um, at least half of them. And so uh, one of them is, is called the crowdsourcer. And it's not typical crowdsourcing. It's really got the goal of finding something I call an adjacent expert. And that means it's someone that's not right in your work ecosystem, but someone just outside of it. It's not just networking to go to the same type of person. Like if you were, happen to be a phlebotomist at that clinic, um, you know, it's not going out to another phlebotomist that does the exact same thing at the same company because that person swims in the same swimming pool you do. And, and this is all about getting outside of that swimming pool and going find finding some other field to play in with other people. And so you go find an, an, an expert that's adjacent. And so by going online, you could go on LinkedIn, you could go to uh, a lot, you could go just to the internet and use a repetitive sequence, almost like a, an email marketer where you contact the same expert over and over, tell the person agrees to help you for 10 minutes. There, we can't go through the processes, but there's a very natural conversation to say, hey, you're an expert at this, and I need your help. I just want 10 minutes to help my job or my company, and would you be willing to talk to me for 10 minutes? It's a very natural conversation, but since we've been, another thing we were taught since we were three years old is don't talk to strangers. <laughs> and so guess what we don't do? We don't talk to strangers. We're glad to text an email and LinkedIn with them, but we don't get on the phone or get in front of them on Zoom or even in person. But that is exactly what has to happen to share a lot of ideas between human beings. And so email's great, texting, messaging's great, but the, the, the speed and the quantity of information is so weak compared to a human conversation, it's not even close. And so con figuring out who those people are through LinkedIn or through the Internet and then contacting them initially to set up the, the conversation through repetition and email and all those other social media. But then to get on the phone with them for 15 in 15 minutes, you would have so much information about what you described as a, a, a mild, lowercase conflict of interest. Um, I say mild not because it's not hard, but because it's not, it doesn't sound like a legal conflict of interest. It just sounds like an emotional conflict of interest. But you would, in 15 minutes of an executive of, or, or a leader of a different company that's, will, that's safe and not your customer and not your employer and say, look, just help me out. You're in Cincinnati and we're not competing. How do you handle this? How do you think about it? And if you had seven conversations like that, you would be the expert at your company. There's just not a question. There would be no one that knows more about that issue than you after seven conversations, but maybe five top people in the company. To that point, Mark, I'd like to bring up, I know I have found that LinkedIn and other social media platforms are actually great ways to ask for help. And when you do, 
people are willing to respond. Jody, you might remember that that's how we met. I asked you for help and you responded and we've created this great relationship. Talk a little bit maybe, Jody, about your experience asking strangers for help and input. Well, um, I agree with you that people like to help other people. And I think that um, goes along with their innate need to be needed because mm -hmm. people need to be needed. Um, so it's interesting. Um, uh, I used to ask for more help. I think I tend not to as much anymore to the masses as I do to individuals. Um, so irony there, maybe something I need to look at. Um, but uh, I, so, and restate the question. I'm sorry, I'm feeling a little under the weather. So, so just, just how, how have you found when you ask people for help, their response? Yeah, so um, people are typically very eager, right? Um, going, yeah, so the answer is the same. People are eager to help because it, it, um, it goes to that need to be needed thing. It, um, and, um, and they feel valued. Right. I feel. Um, One comment like that. that just came in through the questions was, right now, people are isolated. And loneliness is a real emotional factor that people are dealing with. And so maybe now more than ever, people are willing to get on the phone, share their thoughts, be needed, share their, you know, their ideas and suggestions. Now's a good time to ask for that kind of help. Well, yeah. So actually, um, there's a, a couple people that I'm coaching and um, one of those people said to me that he hadn't talked to certain people. He's going through a divorce, and he said he hadn't talked to certain people for a long, long time, like 10 years or six years. And I said, so what exactly is stopping you from reaching out? And he said, don't know. <laughs> I said, you know, like, so what would that look like? And... Um, and then, then, of course, I shared to create some comfort that a girlfriend of mine who I'd not seen since 1985 had reached out to me in 2007. And so, you know, we can make excuses, you know, to not reach out to people like length of time since we spoke to them. Um, and it doesn't get us anywhere. Um, so like that. And so, you know, that the person I was coaching is um, now on task and accountable for reaching out to uh, three of those people by Sunday. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> hey, uh, Let's ask Calvin. Calvin, do you have any thoughts along these lines about asking people for help? I think starting off in a job or career, it's for me at least, easier to ask for help at the beginning because obviously you're, you're being humbled by your beginning circumstances and being new at a job and everything. And once you uh, start to learn the ropes, it's a little harder to ask for help because you, I don't, for me, I think it's just like a pride thing because you feel like, hey, I've been here a long enough time that I should know how to do this, so I'm not going to ask for help. Um but once you get past that barrier, I think um, it's a lot, it's it's just really helpful to, um, like we've already talked about, I think people are 
usually really happy when someone asks for help to um, to put their input in because they feel like they're um, being valued as well. Yeah, I think that those those internal conversations that uh, you used to have that you don't um, should happen, and that those are an essential an essential part of work life. And then conversations that you have in your company that you haven't had really fit into the category that I'm talking to talking about, where there's a more targeted, smarter crowdsourcing that isn't asking thousands. What I mean by the smarter crowdsourcing is a targeted, but higher number than we expect. So. Um, if you reach outside your company and you go to people that do something adjacent to what you do, similar to what you do for the same type of business or for at least the same type of customer, uh, they know that industry and they can give insights. And those are people you have not met yet. And, and they don't affect your career. They don't affect, uh, well, they do indirectly, but they, they're not someone to be feared that might think you're not smart. Um, it's interesting, as soon as you define your problem at the first step, when you can concisely in one sentence state your opportunity or your problem that you're trying to attack with some sort of innovative process like mine, when you tell that to someone else, like Jody said, there's two things going on. One, we, had, we do have a very powerful innate need to nurture, both genders. And, and so we have this instinct to help other people. We don't have an instinct to get people jobs uh, if we don't have them or have the money to give them jobs. We don't have an instinct to take a sales call uh, unless we need something. And, and so the, the, the type of conversation is a big deal because if you're reaching out with a concisely stated, this is what I'm trying to do, and it seems like you're an expert that might be able to give me insight, will you help me like Jody referred to? That's literally what you say. And then the second thing that's going on there, there's a second need, almost like a cocktail that's mixing with that innate need, a second innate need. We all want to be expert. I mean, you know, Daryl can't shut me up on this call. I want to be smart. We all want to be smart. Uh, some people are more verbal than others, but we all want to be seen as smart. And when you provide, I want to help you, and I want to be smart, and you're saying I'm smart, you're going to get ideas from that person. If, you, they don't, if, if, you don't, if they don't hear anything about a job or a sale, they almost always are willing to talk to you if you're persistent in getting a hold of them. One, idea that, just, so one idea that just came in as a, as a comment I think I'll share is outside of work conversations, an amazing communication tool during this weird time is postal snail mail. If people fear communication in other ways, how special would it be to get a note or a letter or a picture or a token in the mail? We yeah. kind of forgot how to use snail mail. Yeah, for sure. You know, another unexpected place is your neighbors, your families. We, we, we have relationships in our neighborhood and in our families and extended friendships that we don't think of professionally. And it's really interesting in our minds. If you were to list those people, which I have done and had others do, and this is always true, almost always, um, you know, I don't think of the person that lives behind me, literally, from where I am right now. There's a person that lives directly behind me. I never thought of him as a professional. He was a dear friend. He was a neighbor. I talked to him all about neighborhood, church, other things, and uh, not much about work. You know, maybe the market or something like that, but not each other's work. And when I was listing people, I listed titles next to them. 
And it dawned on me, oh, he's a senior vice president of an insurance company. He knows the answer to my question. <laughs> and so there's there's a there's a font, there's a, a distinction that we have in our minds of people that we know. Uh, my wife's a, a fanatic, not a fanatic, but a, an enthusiast about this next door neighbor app. I think it is. And those, um, you know, we found my cousin's dog because of that app. You, if if you go on to the social media where you have your friends, not just your professional associates, and you ask a professional question concisely that's appropriate for the context, and say, does anyone know this type of person? So if you have the, the role of that adjacent expert defined and you know who you're trying to get a hold of and you have a variety of maybe, like I said, at least seven different people and you reach out to your personal inner circle, they're going to get you to your outer circle for sure. Yeah. So they're willing to help you. They love you and they know someone that can help you answer the question that you have. Well, and Mark, I think what, you know this conversation about seeking out ideas from other people applies whether you're trying to improve your own job within your work or whether you're trying to help your company find new ways. And I think right now a lot of companies are in that condition or position to where they're having to look outside what they normally do. You know, yeah. the, the world has changed. And so I think this idea of just reaching out to people you know who you may not otherwise think of to get ideas, pose the question, ask for help, can be a great resource. And ask for contacts is the most important thing. Do you yeah. know someone who can tell who knows anything about X? Yep. Um, one, one last point on that, and I'll be, since we're getting close on time, I'll just bounce back to number two maybe for a second uh, and try to help those that are on. Um, but, but the last point about this is, is really the, the conciseness of it and that you need to up your, your thinking about this because the best example I've heard of is a gentleman that, that started a philanthropy and talked to 150 people that serve the same customer, the same target customer. And this is true internally, too. You know, this could be uh, someone who serves patients, in Calvin's case. There are easily 50 types of people that serve patients. And talking to each one of them, when you get those different angles instead of the same overlapping answer that you ask someone who does exactly what you do that you work for you get entirely different angles in creativity and breakthrough ideas from those conversations but it takes at least seven so up your thinking think about that example of 150 I'm not saying you have to, to dive into 150 new relationships and conversations but at least seven not one so the other thing, back to defining this and getting really uh, understood about it, people love to be approached with smart people. Um, someone who's really done their homework and thought through something and understands the depth of the question and then presents it concisely and then flatters them and says, you're an expert, can you help me out? That's an, that's an enriching, insightful, and really inspiring conversation for them, too. They want to have that conversation. So the second, the second process that I take people through in innovating their, their jobs, work, or their company is, um, is something that I call the photojournalist. And the reason I call it the photojournalist is there's something in innovation that is a practice that is not done in cubes and offices ever. And so this really does just apply to the one out of 13 things that those people are saying that, that they should focus on online this morning. Um, and so it's an exception 
to do exceptional work. But what it is, is, is it's, it's a mini ethnography. In product development, where serious innovation has, where there's software and process and, and rigor, um, they do ethnography that lasts six, to, six months to a year or two to really understand customer needs. They, they go on site where people buy, where people use, half of the, the, the detergent and laundry products that we all buy from Procter & Gamble has been fulfilled because the CEO at that time was in the washroom of the homemaker, believe it or not. Um, and, you know, Febreze was saved. Febreze was failing, and guess how they saved it? They, they did what I'm talking about. Huh. But for a normal person that's not in product development, a lighter version of ethnography, product ethnography, that I call the photojournalist, is amazing. And, and, I, and I, people don't want to do this, and they fight me all the time. And the ones that do, I get about 80%. I've had clients say, you're not doing that one. We'll do the other four. And I fight and fight, and, and I've had one or two that just won't do it. And they miss out. Every time they miss out because – the, the, the statistics and the results that I've witnessed are dramatic. And what it is, is we learn so much. We, we, I'll have you finish this thought. A picture is worth a thousand words. words. And so when you three-dimensional get into the space of the problem, it's more than a picture. Right now, they're in COVID and in other circumstances. I, I use Zoom, and Zoom is a great tool. But the phone camera is the best friend. I, I send people to malls. I have executives, CEOs, go to malls in their city. And, and, and they just think it's a ridiculous waste of time. But in principle, they have a problem they're trying to solve. They have 200 amazing corporations that have planned significantly to have those stores be successful. They've invested millions in training. There's so much depth even in a mall when you get to the manager level. And the variety that surrounds the mall of hotels and restaurants and law firms and accounting firms, there's a variety of businesses that surround that ecosystem. And so when I, when I am in a space where, where the company can't get to their customers or there's no way that they can get someone on the line to do something that is what I really want to do, plan B is just to send them to the mall. Hmm. So, if you if you have a problem you're trying to solve and you want to really get some breakthrough ideas, you discover what the problem is specifically, what the type of customer it is that you're whether it's internal or not, and you say could could that be done anywhere really accessible where I have a a trapped <laughs> audience that will talk to me? Well, if you can go find it out by asking for the manager of a restaurant or a law firm or whatever it is that's in the ecosystem of a downtown. You can literally just spend a morning and blow your own mind with this problem. And there's a process. There's three simple steps we don't have time for today, but I'm glad to share them if you reach out to me, as you see on the screen. But it's called the photojournalist because your job is to go find breakthrough ideas and bring them back home and tell the story. And nice. when you understand the story of the customer's purchase and use, or in, in, in some cases your internal customer, where you're walking down the hall. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but I've done it hundreds of times. You're just walking down the hall, and you're visiting Jenny and her cube, 
and for the first time ever, you see the little dolls on her left and the pictures on her right and the weird thing under her desk that she exercises with, and you understand Jenny. You say, Jenny, I know this sounds crazy, but you blame it on Mark Cook. You say, this weird consultant, Mark Cook, he's making me do this. Can you show me the computer screens from email to PowerPoint to the sharing app and everything you do? Can you just show me the process of how you use that report I send you every Monday morning? And then she shows you, and people's minds are blown with ideas about how to improve. And it's, it, the statistics on this particular item, it sounds like a strange thing to do if you're in a Cuber office, but you are 17 times more likely to be engaged in your own work if you do this photojournalist exercise. You are 12 times more likely to thrill some emotional response empirically that person that you serve if you've been in their space and understand in three dimensions visually, not just by a phone call or email. Mark, fantastic advice. We need to wrap things up today. So in an effort to do that, I'm going to just talk a little bit about what we've got coming up in the future. And I've got a quick little video to show you as well to wrap things up. So on Monday, April 13th, we have some amazing health coaches who will be joining us to talk about the word on the street. I hear from our health coaches here at Orion that COVID-19 is pretty much the primary conversation everyone wants to talk about right now. I've asked a couple of our coaches to join us and share what they're hearing from participants, and what kind of advice they're sharing to help people cope in being resilient. For next Wednesday, April 15th, Amelia Forcheck will be back with us along with her friend Amanda Robbins. Amanda is a business coach with Performance Coach University. The theme of the huddle will be about making the most of extra downtime. On Friday, April 17th, the week from today, we have Dr. Stephen Shimp, who will be joining us to discuss resilience from an MD's perspective. Dr. Shimp is a retired CEO of the University of Maryland Medical Center and COO of the University of Maryland Medical System. He's an internist researcher, educator, professor of medicine and public policy, and he's the author of many books, including Longevity Decoded, The Seven Keys to Healthy Aging. Now, immediately following the huddle today, you'll be receiving an email survey asking for feedback on today's huddle. We encourage you to complete it and give us feedback on how we can make these more effective and more meaningful to you. Also, please send us your ideas and suggestions for themes for future huddles. Again, if you'd like to be a guest to provide your input as a panelist, or if you know someone who would, you would recommend, we'd love to hear from you. Just let us know through the Contact Us form on the goingonoffense.com website. We want to thank today's participants and guests. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Calvin. I also want to thank the organizations who have gotten behind this effort. Please check out the wonderful offers of help. We keep getting new ones almost every day on the help page. We also want to let you know that we'll be posting the recording of today's huddle on the website later today. So to wrap up the huddle, I'm going to play a music video that I think you'll enjoy. But before I do, I want to remind everyone that we're giving a $1,000 reward to the video that uses hashtag going on offense that encourages people to do the three things that Dr. David Price suggests, which are to keep your hands clean, don't touch your face, and keep your distance. 
the video that gets the most likes on social media by the end of April will win $1,000. <laughs> we'll sign off now and say goodbye and hope you will join us for an upcoming uh, huddle. Remember, we do these every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thanks again, Mark. You bet. Thanks, everyone.